Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Cafe. I'm Otis. And I'm Tommy. And today we're talking with Alejandro Prieto at the Basque County University in Vitoria, Spain, and of the University of Salamanca in Salamanca, Spain. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks. Thanks for inviting me here. Hi. Hi, Alejandro. When did you decide to become an archaeologist? Uh, well, this is an interesting story since well, I started a university by making the bachelor degree on history, in fact. And since I was interested in, in historical movement, and at the same time, in 2005, archaeological degrees were not developed in Spain. So, well, when I was younger, in addition of understanding the societies, like in a historical perspective, I always, I always have for my like the relationship between human and environment. So, uh, so for some time, I was interested also in doing biology, geography, bachelor degrees. But at the end, I made this history. And at the first seminar of prehistory or prehistorical archaeology, I just was shocked because I saw that this topic could fool all the interest I had until that time. So in the first class of prehistory in my bachelor degree, yeah. Hmm. So what is the most interesting project have you worked on? Or what's the most interesting place that you worked? Like what made it interesting for you? Yeah, I, I love like to be in excavation. I was like in important sites, especially in Tautabel, where some of the oldest remains of Omorcaster were found in Soningen with this impressive site at the edge of a big coal mine. But I also was in some places that they are like not so important, but they are really interesting, like Lesechiki, Irikaits, Volinkova. And moreover, I, I really prefer and I see like more interest in the places like in the projects I'm working on, like making geological surveys around Picos de Europa, which is an extremely stupid area, still not fully humanized. And I love being there, just searching for geological strata and sleeping in my van with some of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like great to have the feeling of, of having in these places where the people really back in the past, they just were changing the, the shape of the earth by extracting raw material as we make today. So I really like this kind of surveying and making geology in, in the field. When you're doing field work, do you stay in a camper van then? Yep, yep, I used to. What type? Uh, I've got like a very big van and I use it just for being just just uh, in, the, in the field and of course in sleeping there because you, you spend like a lot of time traveling. So sometimes it's better just to stay there with your van sleeping in those workplaces, it's great. Yeah, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> I used to have a Volkswagen Combi, an old one. Ah, no. And it was a, but it was a camper van type. And the, the interior was all kitted out for, for camping and had electrical plugs in it, uh, a sink. It was really nice. Yeah, in my case, my one, it's really big one. It's a Opel Vivaro and I prepared it by myself. So it's great too. Oh, nice. nice. That's actually pretty awesome. <laughs> I like that. Well, we should have some time, like uh, maybe some sort of episode where we talk about different types of methods of doing field work, like camping and staying in tents versus vans versus 
dig houses in Seoul because that's a whole other aspect of doing field work. Like, where do you sleep? Where do you live? That's true because I, I remember staying a lot in crew houses. You know, there's like 10 of us to one house, you know, that the company provide all that stuff. Or there's two to a tent when we camp out yeah. at the site. Stuff like that. It makes things very interesting. Yeah. Vans are nice though because it's a portable thing. You can drive, you can find a place to pull off. It's already set up. Uh, it's like a small apartment right there yeah. ready for you as soon as you pull off. And uh, yeah, it's quite nice. Do you have to get permission to do that? Like if you go onto an archaeological site, do you have to get permission to, sh- to actually drive up to it and park there or you just... Well, it depends. For instance, in Picos de Europa, it's important to have the permission since it's like um, a restricted area, a natural area. So you have to do it. But in general, for making just geosurveying, making geology is not necessary. It's ah. interesting. What's your main research focus? Well, it's clearly raw material characterization, and in particular, quartzite. And yeah, I doing so, well, I delimit the areas where, where this resource was acquired by Paleolithic population. And I also try to understand how the people take this resource and how they manage it. It's like I'm applying that into the middle and upper Paleolithic contexts, mainly in the Cantabrian region, in the northwestern part of the Iberian Peninsula. And yeah, this is a very big mountainous area, clearly influenced also by the by the sea and the, well, the weather is totally different than the weather expected in the rest of Spain. It's really cold and humid, and well, there are like a lot of middle and upper Paleolithic sites there. So yeah, it's, it's the my main research focus of raw material characterization. So for the benefit of our listeners and for the benefit of me. Could you tell us when was the Middle Paleolithic and the Upper Paleolithic in Western Europe? Like, what defines these periods? Yeah, sure. Well, they are really big on time, of course. The Middle Paleolithic ranged approximately 300,000 years ago until 40,000 years ago. And well, it's well known because it's the time when Neanderthal populated Europe by developing like the culture called like uh, Musterian. And the Upper Paleolithic is ranged from, from this 40,000 to 10,000 years ago. So when the first farmer society starts settling Europe, but the Upper Paleolithic is the time when yeah, the Homo sapiens just settled into European continent. There are like so many different cultures in Western Europe. It's like we've got like Arrhenian, Rabitian, Solutrian and Magdalenian. And well, it is said that at that time, uh, we've got this clear um, complex behavior in Europe. So I'm interested in, in understanding how quartzite procurement and management evolved during these two different uh, time frames. So, you know, so the, the, the main difference from the sounds of it is, is agriculture between the two periods, right? And the development of complex societies. Um, the Upper Paleolithic ends when agriculture appears. Okay. Yep, you're right. Okay. Agriculture is pretty much synonymous with the Neolithic, or potentially the Mesolithic, depending on where you are. But uh, yep. once agriculture appears, the Paleolithic has done. Yep. So no. the Upper Paleolithic is basically the period when humans started to display a large number of modern behaviors such as art, trade, controlled use of fire, 
increased artifact diversity. Yeah, right. Yeah, we call it like it suddenly arrived uh, this complex behavior that we are observing before in Africa, like also like control of fires and having like spears properly for throwing them and bows and arrows. So all these things. And of course, also the, the invention of, of arts and other complex behavioral that should be yeah. theoretically only associated to this homo sapiens and not to the Neanderthals. Ah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a question about exactly how much of that, but but you definitely see a great proliferation of it during this period when the the anatomically modern humans yeah uh, in Europe. Why did you choose this area of research? Well, I think that when I finished my master, or when I was finishing better at that time, I was working with project more related with understanding middle to upper Paleolithic transition, but um, trying to understand them using chronological models. Uh, the problem was that I was not solving like my main interest and understanding the reason behind. I just making like clear um, times for saying, okay, this is middle, this is upper Paleolithic, but which are the reason behind? And then I try to understand the mobility and how we manage the results provided by the environment. Then I thought, well, which resources? And then I decided, of course, to be precise, something that I think is important in science. And I decided to isolate just one variable. And the result, the resource I decided to understand was quasite, because at the um, quasite, suddenly in the Upper Paleolithic, it's like there is a clear decrease on the on the use instead of on the Middle Paleolithic, and that that this resource was more used. And well, I thought that maybe I can find there some reason why we've got this different and complex behavior by analyzing this, this quartzite. So that's more or less when I decided to start with that. I also work with this material. So I'm very, very interested in your take because I work in the prairies in North America. Mm -hmm. So what is quartzite? Why do you specifically study this material? Because I'm, I work with a lot of quartzite too. Yeah, and and I'm not familiar with quartzite in your area, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say there's a, probably a lot of similarities, and I'm gonna say that I hate looking at quartzite because it's a very difficult lipid material to to analyze. It's one of the hardest to work with. Yeah. So I'm interested in your take. Yeah, it's like yeah. well, I think this is a very good question. It's, it's like quartzite, in fact, is a rock in general terms, let's say, and it's can refer, I think, that to rock created by metamorphism in general terms. Yeah. That is a rock which is what's modified or created because of heat and pressure. Yeah, from sandstone, yeah. But that's the point. Yeah. It's like uh, sometimes it's also referred to the parent sedimentary rock, which is the sandstone itself. So at the end, it's like I prefer just to say that quasite is a rock mainly composed by sandy quartz grain, more or less modified by pressure and heat. And that's the point where I stop it. And well, in fact, I, I try to, to make a good reflection of that uh, with an article I published two years ago and trying to put all together all the things that, that archaeologists and sometimes geologists also call quasite. And yeah, well, so, so more or less, this is the, the, the affection of quasite I understood. But for instance, in, the, in, the, in Germany, I was working with quasite, which was clearly related with secrets processes rather than pure metamorphic uh, 
rock. So, so yeah. So you, so you, you're interested in in the process. Like, I, I I'm gonna say like, have, is there is there a lot of quartzite uh, artifacts in terms of uh, stone tool making? I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah. In terms I'm, of, are they? I guess I, I'm trying. I guess the only thing I could compare it to is what I've seen here in North America, and they're they're very very crude. The the tools I come across, and I I gotta assume that it's not so crude in Europe. Well, here there are like very well there are like quasi that are naked, really in a good good shape, let's say, very good ones, and it's possible to find, for instance, um, leaf points made on on quasite, and sometimes you've got really rude, let's say, uh, quasite that they were only used for making the faces or chopper chopping tool and so on. So it's like we've got a wide quantity or wide wide different type of quasite from, from the real, real sedimentary world to the more metamorphic one. And of course, the capable uh, possibilities of, of the material totally change from one to another type. Wow. So what does, what, what does your research involve? Like what methods do you use? Yeah, and there are like a lot of things I do. Since I'm approaching my research by using a real archaeological perspective, um, and I make like a combination between archaeology and geology, then I understand geological and geographic information, but doing maps with this, I also make geological survey. I also mentioned that. Um, I take samples, of course, in the field. I also analyze the lithic assemblages from archaeological sites in museums, in universities, and so on, by applying non-destructive microscopic approaches. And I also take some samples from them to make them uh, mainly thin section. So just cutting the stones and doing a very thin slide of 0.3 millimeter. And I characterize them with the petrographic microscope with different kind of illuminations. And I also try to understand doing so, like how, how the quasite was created. And finally, at the end of everything, I make geochemistry by using X-ray fluorescence and doing so, well, I can understand where the material exactly comes from, or more or less exactly. It's, it's, it's hard to determine exactly the, the location, but at the end, I think that I fully characterize the quasite making this association with geography, archaeology, and geology. What kind of training did you need for the methods that you use? Well, a lot. It's like, it's like, well, I've got like really basic knowledge on geology, geography, and archaeology in my, in my bachelor, but especially in the master degree, which is, was focused on quaternary research. It's, it was like a multi-approach master in which I mainly took uh, geoscience seminars. Okay. And in addition, well, I make like, a uh, lot of knowledge on, on petrography. I learned it from my one of my supervisors of my PhD, Professor Iñaki Justa, from the Basque Country University. And I also learned a lot following uh, courses like like technological characterization of lithics or experimental archaeology, statistics, um, geographic information system, of course. And I made also a lot of self teaching. In fact, it's like I'm learning every day. I, I've got, I, I was analyzing just one thin section, really, really weird today. Yeah, it's, it's like all time, um, like learning new, new things. Did you learn a lot from formal courses or 
training from other researchers while you're on projects or were you self-taught? I think all three, all three, because I made some courses, but at the end, when you go really inside the, for in this case, like the quasi problem, let's say that there is, there are like a lot of journal articles just talking about the question of quasi, um, you have to go just by yourself because uh, there is no other way. It's like you are more or less in the limit of the knowledge. So uh, you just need self-teaching, I think, At, after, after the first part. It's a very specialized field. Yeah, it is. So you, you mentioned earlier, like, it was it was kind of difficult for you to find sources of quartzite. So I got it. So were many people were using this this material. I mean, it is quite a hard material to to use, especially if you want to make stone tools out of it. Um, like, is it because they use quartzite because it was easy available everywhere, like like from the rivers, cobbles, or do you? Do you think they have other desired characteristics? Well, it's like yes and no. It's like we've got, in general terms, we, you can find quasite in cobbles in the river. Uh, but uh, the point is that the, the main strata are very small, the strata which crop out in these cases, and the quantity of, of, of these stones in the river are really low, especially when you go to trying to find these very specific varieties people were using for a specific tasks, for a specific um, tools, uh, and so on. So at the end, they are not so so many sources of quasite, and despite they are in the in the river beaches, it's it's really hard to find them and to select them. I think that it's like we can make at least in the Cantabrian region, like a comparison with the gold uh, searcher or whatever. You you must spend like so many hours just um, trying to find the, the the good quasite varieties in the in the river beaches, but at same we've got these big outcrops that in this region they are more related with conglomerate outcrops where you can find the the good quartzites and yeah they are still they are they are not so many there. That's that's interesting because it's it's the opposite of where I'm at because we find uh, we or we have an abundance of quartzite in the rivers and stuff like that and so we find that the people here actually. They just collect them because they're easy. They're easy available, and they use them. It's it's more so than a flint or chert, which is which is you could say it's more rare here. So yeah. From the, so from the sounds of it, like they went and actively tried to procure quartzite specifically for to make specific tools. Then did or did I misunderstand that? Yeah, it's like it's like we've got. I mean, if we consider that quartzite can be a sandstone. That at the end, it was the point that we've got, it's like, okay, you can find quasite everywhere. But when you understand and, and see exactly the properties of the quasite, but this insection characterization, the non-destructive uh, microscopic characterization and so on, you take care that, in fact, they are selecting very, very, very specific varieties. And in my case, by using the analysis of cortical areas, we are discovering that they are coming not from the river, but also from conglomerate formation, which can be far, um, like they, they can be more than 20 or even 30 kilometers from the site they, they procure them or they, they, they use them. So at the end, we've got this double uh, and mixed possibilities. You can find them in the river, but making a very big searching of this raw material or going to the source. 
directly. And you, of course, in general terms, you need to, to work a lot, especially in this area, which is a very mountainous area. So at the end, it's, it's quite hard to move in, this, in these places. Wow. Do you think that they were choosing sometimes because they wanted a more durable material? Because I know that sometimes these materials, which are harder to work, they're yeah. also a bit more durable. So they make good axes. Uh, they make if you need um, like a material that's not going to easily chip away, that's going to keep its form for a bit harder usage. Do you think that this might have been a reason that they liked quartzite? Yeah, yeah, I think that there are like two reasons behind. One, probably it's related with the use and the other one is related with the inapability. I'm mm -hmm. currently, in fact, I'm making like a new postdoctoral um, application and um, and well, I'm going to work with, with, or hopefully, I will work with this kind of question, especially in the capable in the capacities of capable uh, of, of the quasi, trying to understand mm -hmm. them by using like material science and engineering, by um, experimental archaeology and so on, and trying to find if there are, like you say, like like an association in between capable materials use. Uh, possibilities and the uh, specific type of quasites. What have you learned about the economic and social dynamics involved in the acquisition and management of quartzite? Yeah, it's like well, so many things. It's like there are like a lot of small decisions uh, we are understanding using this kind of analysis, but in the Cantabria region, it's like we are observing that quasite is an interesting marker to know where Paleolithic people was, it's it's quite interesting. Then we can understand the past mobility, and yeah, doing so, uh, we detect that Paleolithic people are probably crossing the mountain range that split the Cantabrian coast and the inner areas of Iberia. Um, we are also observing that, uh, as I mentioned previously, that some quasi varieties were more exploited than the other ones and that they are in general harder to find and you need more distance to, to make, to acquire them. And yeah, we are also learning that middle Paleolithic population travel with these stocked materials with a spe in a specific type and they made the toolkits on them also. And yeah, that the other type of quasi, this other more related with sandstone, they are less used and they were discarded few time after their former acquisition and the, and the first uses. Hmm. So we are observing like complex and varied behaviors. Um, and I think, think that they are like similar than we made today when talking about the object we produce and we use today. So uh, I like to think that this object and action, like, like the ones we see today with the extraction, manufacturing of products and so on, uh, but on totally different scale. And that's the point. And I don't know if you and the audience know something about these supplies chains from their products, the product we've got in our table or whatever. It's it's nice to see like one um, web page called like open source map. And I like to think like how we humans like change this short, medium or even long mobility of even 30 kilometer movement of raw material acquisition in the middle Paleolithic to move product today that cover the entire world and involves yeah. several hundreds of people. So, yeah, I think that the, the economic and social dynamic evolve are, are related with this kind of question of different acquisition, different management of quasites. You make it sound like there's, there's I'm going to 
there's two types of quartzite. Like you just you make it sound like there's a fine grain quartzite and a coarse grain quartzite. And from my understanding, uh, the coarse grain quartzite would be more more closer to sandstone. But it's, am I am I getting this right? Or am I understanding this right? Or I'm sorry, you got me excited. I'm just trying to learn as much I can about quartzite sorry? in Europe. Yeah, is, it's is like. It? Yeah, in, in Europe, we've got also this kind of separation. But the point is that when we say that um, coarse grain, it's like we are mainly referring to textural point or to grain size. And the point is that we have to go inside these two questions. And I think that that's what I made until today. It's like trying to define the different phases by applying ge- geological um, understanding of the formative process of, of quasite. Then the point is that well, I consider, or at least I discover in the Cantabrian region, that there are like seven different petrogenetic types. That's how it should be named, in fact. And each type have or can have different grain size varieties. Um, sometimes we've got like fine grain size varieties in the very sedimentary parent rock. But sometimes we've got these fine grains in, in the in the more deformed strata of quasite. So at the end, well, what I made in this point is trying to separate these two different worlds, trying to separate the the uh, the petrogenetic um, or, or genetic um, way of creating the quasite by using pressure and afterwards analyzing the grain size of the quasite. Because in addition, the, the different formative processes, the pressure or the heat, with the increase of pressure or heat, for instance, the grain size clearly changes. And sometimes we refer here to coarse, no, to fine grain quartzite, to some quartzite with have really, really big quartz grain when we compare that with sedimentary ones. So it's it's I think that there are like um uh like a lot of possibilities if we understand the real origin of the quasite and after that the modification by for instance geochemical methods that can trace also not only the, the petrogenetic type of the quasite but also like weathering processes affecting the quasite and we can say for instance that they come from uh, river beaches or they come from conglomerates or even from direct outcrop formation that's mm. right yeah I, I gotta find your study. <laughs> we'll put a link to it in the episode notes. So, what is the most interesting thing that you discover about the societies who inhabit the Cantabrian region during the Middle and Upper Paleolithic? Well, we are observing that Middle Paleolithic population. Yeah, they 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 made like this great selection of types. Uh, and they were using also these middle range plateaus areas to acquire quartzite in conglomerates and make more efficient transit in this mountainous region. Okay, at the end they combine uh, at least that's what quartzite is is suggesting like different areas creating like an economic mosaic of different type of biotopes. So we've got like putting together high uh, or middle range mountainous area or plateau areas with these valleys. Uh, lower valleys and these strategies I think that they are allowing like middle paleolithic societies not only to achieve like a comprehensive knowledge of this landscape but also to adapt to different seasons and maybe to global climatic changes that got on the region during that time 
And conversely, I think that other Paleolithic societies, they are practicing like a more intense and specific use of the landscape, which is based on the intensive acquisition of resources, in this case, in the valleys rather than across the plateaus. So maybe we are detecting some of the difference in environment and resource management. Mm. And well, at the end, that was the, the hypothesis we would like to check, to, to check, yeah. And of course, we should confirm all these hypotheses with more data and ideas because still the analysis I, I made until today, it's, it's made on a very small part of the Cantabria region and still few sites were analyzed. I think that I just analyzed it like uh, 11 archaeological layers. So we must understand more layers and more layers to have this broad perspective in mind. Do you, do you find there's a, do you find any evidence of how they use quartzite in, um, in different ways between the two periods in this region? I mean, like, are the, are the tools they're making or the materials they're making is perhaps a little more finer in Upper Paleolithic than in Middle Paleolithic? And did he use, and did, and sorry, did he use like quartzite as a, as a firecrack rock or, 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 or for stone boiling? No, well, I think in general they are using like the same petrogenetic types. Okay. okay. But the, the question is that they are using different areas of, of having these, these petrogenetic types. Some are using just one specific area in the Upper Paleolithic, uh, and, and they, they went to them directly to the river and they obtained like a lot of quasite and they made really good selection of quasite. Mm. And in the, in the Middle Paleolithic, what I see more, it's like they are getting quasite from many different places. So at the end, they are combining different places of, of the environment, not only the river valleys to acquire this quasite, but also these, these areas which are more related with, with this Middle Plateau range because there are like a lot of, of, of conglomerate of quasites there. Oh. And they are selecting the, the quasites from this conglomerate. We would like to make also like um, try to understand uh, if, for instance, in the Upper Paleolithic, they are making uh, fire treatment or heat treatment or whatever, because of course it can change the shape of the quasite and even the structure of the quasite. Because at the end, what make a good quasite it's are these quasite which receive like a lot of heat, a lot of pressure, and you can get a different shape using just uh, uh, yeah putting the quasite on the fire or whatever. But they are just question that that we have to still working on that, and we have to continue working on the quasite to understand all these very specific point of 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 naping properties of the of the quasites. So, so that's interesting. So you're saying that they're heat treating quartzite to to make it to make it more easier to work with. Yeah, maybe. I think that yeah. there are. Um, I think that Patrick Smith he's making really nice work on heat treatment uh, with silk reds in South Africa and also in in Australia, and they are getting these results that they can be better for napping, but especially they. Well, I think that they made uh, an article just few days ago and they said also that they increase the use possibilities and the mm. the of, of the of these secrets these secrets are much more different than the quasite we've got but but it's possible to to make like uh, better napping processes uh, better napping properties of, of quasite by using heat treatment yeah uh, okay i'm very interested in that article I, I gotta tell you my specialty is i look at fire crack rock Especially, uh-huh. heat treatment, especially heat treatment and rock and stuff like that and how to use around like for cooking 
activities uh, yep. and stuff like that. So I got a lot of questions, but I think I better start, I better read your articles <laughs> first. <laughs> yeah, take a look at them. So what are you working on now? What's your current project about? Yeah, I'm, my, my postdoctoral project is named like from Cantabrian region to Central Europe. It's economic and ter territories and procurement and management of quasi by Paleolithic population. And it's like the project is divided in three parts. The first one, it's trying to dip into the economy and way of life created around quasi in the valley I already mentioned you around Picos de Europa. And we are analyzing quasi in other sites of the region, especially searching for long stratigraphic sequence to observe changes in, in chronologic in the same place and to observe the differential uh, management and procurement strategies of quasi. The second line tries to enlarge the area of study. And, and I start working on the on the Seya Valley, which is very near to the first valley I made. And also I'm analyzing sites such as El Cierro and Tito Bustillo. In fact, that's what I'm doing today in, in, in Salamanca. And finally, and I think that this is the most interesting, at least for me, uh, the last line of research is trying to reinforce the methodology already created to characterize quasi. And we applied this methodology in the Rim Valley. And the starting point for, for, for this project is, or for this part of the project, it was the, the site called Troisdor Ravensberg. And first results are suggesting that this site was a procurement scenario in which uh, Neanderthals were quarrying a very specific quasi type that I said you before that mm -hmm. it's more related with secret rather than sandstone or pure quasi. And it's very interesting because it's like Neanderthals were modifying or modeling uh, the, 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 the shape of the earth, the surface of the, of the earth, because they are making like quarry gene or proto-quarry gene processes, just searching for a very specific vein of quasi there, which is associated also with, with microcrystalline quartz grains, okay? Not only with, with quartz grains. And we are observing like the economy created around this, this quasite and making also uh, geological surveys in the Rim Valley. Uh, we find like more quartzitic spots in the area and we, we analyzed um, sites such as Kleine Grotefenhofer, which is the first place where Neanderthal was described in Europe, and Rattingen, which is also an interesting site. And it seems like quasite outcrop, they are basic to understand the habitat distribution of the region because it's like there are many sites associated to potential quartzite outcrops. Uh, still, all these results are very preliminary since I just finished this part of the project 20 days ago and I'm processing the data. But, well, it's, it's nice to have these, these things. And also there are like two other comments I, I, I really would like to acknowledge. And it's like the first is like the geological method I applied mm -hmm. perfectly it also in this region, <laughs> then right, it's like the method is relative tested. It could be great that more researchers could, could test them, but that's still I I I tested in a, in a second places. And second, which is also interesting, it's like to see how the, 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 the area, which is very, very dense area of population in Europe, current population I mean, uh, and how and to see how the historic transformation of this area and how 
um, this density it's totally modifying our perception that we've got on field uh, in geological and archaeological terms. And it's also nice to see that quartzite in this area was quarried until very, very recent times. In this case, for for, for constructive activities, sorry. Yeah. And we only see, at, in some places, in some spots, we only see like the leftover of the historical quarrying processes, but still it's possible to see and characterize the quartzite there. What was the historical period when they were excavating for construction material? It's like, yeah, until the Second World War, they were okay. making um, yeah, quarrying, and also it's possible to see even the, the modification in, in for, because of this Second World, um, Second World War. I also was in one place which it should be related with, with the front of battles and so on, and just was I were there. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. I, I got to say that your research scene sounds more comprehensive. Uh, quartzite studies here in Western North America, at least in the prairies regions, is very, very limited. And I'm looking forward to reading what you have done so far. It might lead to a, a, a whole new way of me looking at quartzite from now on. It could be great, yeah. Well, I think that quartzite was also researched in North America. I think that one of the first researcher just going into the details what um, Bonnie Piplado and she was working with Paleo-Indians population, I think in Colorado and so on. I remember to read that at the real beginning of my PhD. And yeah, and I think that there is also a new, very new articles published in archaeometry by Lech, but I don't remember the name of him. Yeah. And he's also doing like some research of quasi, but yeah. I think that again, it's more related with citrate because the cement in between the grains of quartz, they are microcrystalline quartz grains. So, so mm. I mean, it can be like a secret rather than a than a pure quartzite. Yeah, I look forward to. It. I think there's been a lot of work on silkrete done in Australia. It seems to be a big topic there. Yeah. It's like the main, I think that is one of the main raw material in, in Australia. So that's why they are using it. And yeah, there are like, well, a lot of, of work also related with nipability of the, of the different type of secret and comparing that with other stone tools and so or other rocks and so on. So what advice would you give to people who want to do lithics related work in Spain? Yeah, well, for me, this is like a very good question since I'm very new in the in general in science in this topic. I just presented my PhD two years ago. Still, I think that people should find like new direction and alternative that, that rather than just making classic research line based on the understanding on changes in lithic as the reflection of chronocultural perspective and uh, looking just to retouch an artifact mainly. I think that we should search more on behavioral perspective, understanding that lithic assemblages are better understood in terms of human adaptation on changeable natural and social environment. So, and at the same time, I think that it's also interesting like to apply like different methods and not only this classical type of technological ones, like, I don't know, uh, raw material characterization, which is today very popular here, but also useware analysis, spatial distribution in and offside, refitting analysis, I think it's also very interesting. So I think that it's relevant in general, like to trying to find like a transdisciplinary perspective 
combine different methodologies to the same user. And yeah, so that's more or less the way. And to do that, it's just to read, to, to, to teach, uh, to, to, to have a good formative processes with you and to have discussion with your colleagues and, and try to find and integrate like novel approaches to the same object of a study. So I think that that way it's possible to surpass like the previous and classical explanation to understand lithics, which is more related with, with this cultural tradition, I, I think. Yeah, I think that's good advice in general in archaeology to you know, be multidisciplinary, to be, try innovative ideas. So it's a good advice. So I know you, have you tried mapping quartzite yourself? Sure, sure, a lot. Um, but I'm very bad neighbor. That's important <laughs> to say. But, yeah, and in general, I, I well, I use different uh, hammer, but I really like to use the geological hammer. It's <laughs> 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 not fair, I know. But yeah, I try to make it. And as I told you, I'm well. I, I really want to make this experimental program in the next postdoctoral project I am applying. I don't know if I'm going to get the the fellowship, but still, in just in case, I'm going to. To, to, to go more into the details of, of making the naping processes. Because um, I must admit that in, in this region, in the western part of the Cantabrian region, the flints that we've got there, they are not really good for naping. And especially the format of them mm. are clearly worse than the, the quartzites one. So I think that this is one of the, of the reasons why people are selecting the quartzite instead of flint. Okay. Ah. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, but still, I think that we have to make like a lot of, of, of more work. I mean, it's like we've got flint sources, but they are not like, you know, in the Basque Country, for instance, which is in the east of this region, there are like uh, better flint uh, sources and they are using more flint. Okay, but still, it's like there are a lot of work to do in this in this kind of of, of points, I think. It, it sounds it sounds it sounds similar to the region I'm working at, where uh, uh, what there are there is chert, but they're they're pretty far away. Yeah. So it, it but quartzite is just available everywhere, so it's easy for them just to gather quartzite and use that hmm. to to make to make the materials they they need, right? But yeah, yeah. yeah. And at the end, I've I've yeah. got the impression that we've got like a clear. It's like the perspective I previously talked about them. What the, the advice given to the people? I mean, we have to to try to forget the, the the Flint perspective, which is very focused on Flint. We have to search for in more other raw materials, such as quartz, for instance. There are also really nice research made on them. So, trying to find like this secondary raw material, because I've got the impression that um, they are more desirable rather than the flint. And I think that this is because we've got this very straight online of flint, flint, and flint. And there are like more more, more raw materials and they're interesting also for, for Paleolithic and Neolithic people. Well, good luck with your research. I look forward to seeing how it turns out. And thanks for taking the time today to talk with us about your work. Thanks, Otis. It was great to, to be with you in this interview. Thank, thank you, Alejandro. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Yeah, you too. You've been listening to the Archaeo Cafe podcast. 
For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archeo Cafe Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'll leave you with a quote from Bal Gangadhar Tilak. The geologist takes up the history of the earth at the point where the archaeologist leaves it and carries it further back into remote antiquity.